Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you'll listen to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. My new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, is now available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and any online book retailer you prefer. Check out Drive Your Career today. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you are looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Janine Letford is an author, the host of the Create Rich podcast, and a keynote speaker around an exciting topic called intercultural creativity, which I'm sure we'll hear all about today. Welcome, Janine. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And I'm, uh, you know, I did a quick introduction of you, and I'd love for you to spend a couple of more minutes telling folks a little bit about your background and how you have come to do the work that you currently do in the marketplace. Sure. I have an interesting background. I actually am an elementary school teacher, and I taught K through five, third grade for a little bit, and then the music creative arts program. And then I started a nonprofit for sixth through twelfth of the graduates of my elementary school talking about creative thinking and financial education. And then I was teaching at the university, helping teachers who were getting their master's bring in creative arts and all that type of creative thinking to their classroom. But I was doing this all at the same time. So in one given week, I had a four-year-old to a 64-year-old in the same week. And so that just gave me an interesting perspective to ask the question, are we really giving our kids the tools they need to be successful and brave, you know, especially during this time that we're in now. And now that brought me to the work of creative thinking. And then I saw the research and the effects of cultural. I've always taught cultural competence within my classroom and the elements I've been in, but how does cultural competence affect your ability to be creative and affect your ability to see creativity from other people. And there is the birthing of intercultural creativity. Fantastic. You know, there's a number of things that we could talk about. And if I had another podcast, it might be on financial competence, because that is not something that we talk about in junior high, high school, college, unless you take a class on you know, financial competence, or you are a finance major, but, you know, it's not something that we teach people. And yet it plays such a huge role in your life and existence. And using myself as a quick example, uh, I was not taught anything by my parents about financial competence. And I really didn't learn about financial competence until I started dating my girlfriend, who then became my wife, who was very savvy about financial competence due to the teachings and experiences of her father. So he did teach her how to be proactive and strategic around money. And I'm just curious, while we're not here to talk about financial competence, 
Why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't teach kids as they're growing up financial competence? Well, with anything, the brain is most plastic between zero, zero and four, actually, but I call them the formative years, zero and 12. So if you're going to get a wonderful identity bearing um, habit forming structure into a person, you want to do it during those formative years. And so I believe financial literacy can be taught as early as four, as long as they understand the concept of work and uh, money and value. I don't think it's being taught personally in K-12. I have my like conspiracy theory, but I believe because, you know, we, we focus on consumerism. We focus on, on, ident- on laying your identity with materials. And it's very profitable for a small group of people when masses of people are using most of their discretionary income and sometimes not discretionary income to buy things in order to communicate their value. When no education is on credit cards, how credit cards work, um, how savings works, how investments work, and how your creative capacity works. And, And my tagline is, your creative health affects your financial wealth. And so for people to see the connection between creative thinking, which isn't just artistry, it's producing new ideas, is connected to your financial and your abundance is is huge, but we don't do a good job. Um, so as a representative of the K-12 school system, I do apologize. We have to do better in that area. Well, I don't think you owe anybody apologies since you started to do work on the topic to try to educate people more on financial literacy and financial competence. And I think that might be the topic of your book. Was your book based on financial management and financial awareness? Yes, my first book's called Debt to Destiny, Create, Creating Financial Freedom from the Inside Out. And it's found on JanineLetford.com at of the moment. It's on Amazon as well, but if they, anyone wants to sign copy, JanineLetford.com. But I also have a chapter on creativity. And so I go over how creative thinking attaches to your ability to get out of debt, um, to build wealth for you and your family, and to have a contribution for your community. So it's my personal story of coming out of $100,000 worth of debt with a UCLA degree, knowing no financial literacy at all. Why does someone with a UCLA degree have no clue what's going on? There's a huge misstep there. And I tell people, I don't think it's a curriculum issue. I think it's an injustice-ish issue. So we are doing a huge injustice to a large group of, a large big part of the population by not having this integrated within the the curriculum. Well, a lot of people, it seems like, doesn't have, uh, don't have a choice, right, in respect to wanting to go and get some type of educational accomplishment. And in order to get it, you have to pay for it. And the cost of it sometimes is so high, you don't have the funds. Nobody would have the funds. And so you get loans, right? And so people like yourself graduate from college with 100, 200, you know, I've heard $300,000 in debt, in debt, right? At a college in debt. And they could be paying that debt off for most of their life, right? Or a significant majority of their life. So, you know, I would suggest that you are a, uh, you know, representative of that uh, population. And I hope your own financial literacy has helped you. So tell us a little bit about intercultural creativity. How did that come about? And, you know, how do you work on that model with your clients? Sure. 
because I'm a developmentalist and I work with children and now I work with adults in corporate America, I understand how the brain works. I tell people I have, a, I have my degrees are in psychology and education and curriculum and development, but my street degree is in neuroscience, right? I don't have to, have to actually have an actual degree, but I know a lot about the brain and I've read a lot of books and I study under neuroscientists. And some of my guests on my podcast are neuroscientists as well. And so I looked at number one, that the World Economic Forum says the most needed skill that's needed in the workplace right now is creativity. Janine did not say this, the World Economic Forum said this, but a lot of people were confused with, okay, well, what is creativity? What does it look like? It's not like you're going to a sales training or a communication training. You know, half people think creativity is only artistry. So they're walking around saying they can't, they're not creative because they can't sing or, or dance. And then the other half, they're dealing with some type of creative trauma that they happened in their childhood of someone telling them that their ideas were, you know, stupid or or they were just made fun of for their creative contribution. So they never really tried anything else. So you have a wounded population that's dealing with the term creativity. Yet World Economic Forum is saying this is the number one skill needed in the work, work workplace. And then the pandemic pushed the importance of creativity even more to the top because now we don't even know the formulas aren't working anymore. The old formula of going to school, get a degree, get a good job, work at that job for 40 years and then retire and get a watch and sit in a rocking chair until you die. That formula is gone. Most people are switching jobs. We're calling this time the great resignation, you know, not the great migration, but the great resignation because talent is moving, is on the move. The pandemic threw everything in the air. And so what does it mean to be creative? And so I looked at, it's more than just sitting saying, I am creative. It's really the cognitive processes that are going on. Uh, first of all, the diamond, the gems and our logo is the diamond. So that's why we, we, we go with, with gems. But, you know, creative growth mindset. You have to understand your creative um, empathy. That's a big world word in the business world right now. It's huge in education. But now the business people are starting to say, oh, wait, we should be empathetic. OK. Uh, you know, uh, observation. What does it look like to be observant, curious? I tell people if creativity is the in a, is the engine of innovation, curiosity is the engine of creativity. So, what is it like to regain our curiosity skills in the workplace? Perspective shifting is huge, especially for leaders, and I can talk more about that. And then being adaptable. How do you, do you do that in the workplace? And then you want people who know how to be bridges. And so those are the seven gems of intercultural creativity because my research shows that people who have these gems in place are your highly creative individuals that can see complexity and shift cultural experiences and create with courage and bravery, right? There you go. Well, I'm just wondering when you use the word intercultural, is it because you believe these gems apply to all cultures or is it a way of bringing different cultures together? First of all, I'm big on definitions. So just like I said, okay, well, what is creativity? And which my new definition is the process of problem finding and problem solving with relevance, value, and novelty. That's what creativity is. And that's the definition that I'm pushing out there. When we say culture, your brain automatically goes to ethnic culture, correct? Like people from different parts of the world, different nationalities, different ethnicities. Culture, is defined as just a group of people with 
a specified values, beliefs, and systems. So you can have a soccer mom culture. You can have a tech cult culture. You can, you know, I just got finished doing some work with the organization Cryptocurrency. Crypto is its own cult culture. They have their own language, their own terms, their own ways of doing things. And so culture um, is that. So intercultural creativity is the ability for people to problem find and problem solve with people from different lived backgrounds. Fantastic. Uh, you know, I love how you use the word gems to describe the, you know, kind of seven areas. And I think you're also the first person that I've talked to who uses the concept of problem finding as part of your definition for creativity. Because I think most people think, in fact, I would put money on that most people think creativity is problem solving, right? That you're presented a model, right? And it's almost like leadership development programs you go to, you know, you go to a table and there's a bunch of Legos and some marshmallows and paper clips, and they want you to build a tower, right? And so, you know, how can we creatively solve it? But it sounds as though from your perspective, a significant part of creativity is also problem finding. And that is a huge part. If you look at one of the gems, it's observation. I talk about environmental observation and cultural observation. And my research has shown, number one, physiologically, there's things we, we can't see. The visual spectrum that human beings can see is like tiny compared to all the waves, microwaves, gamma waves, radio waves, x-rays, right? There's so much going on around us that we don't, we can't even perceive because our bodies can't. We, there's so many sounds we can't hear, dogs can hear, that we can't hear. So we're already at a deficit. And then are we dulling our senses even more? And so I attach that to problem finding because when you work on your observational skills and when you're aware of patterns and pattern systems and people breaking patterns, you're able to sense issues that are gonna be on the horizon. So you're able to find problems that people aren't even aware that are coming for them. So highly creative people are not just solving problems that get thrown into their lap. They're very sensitive and very aware and in tune to problems that they can go and solve. And they're curious to see what they can do to help issues that are not even on the board yet that corporations aren't even aware of. Well, I think your idea about curiosity is a key player in that type of relationship. When I work with clients, one of the areas that we talk about is the relationship between curiosity and listening, that you need to be curious. And if you ask a question, you then have to listen, right? So you can't be curious and not listen, or you can't be a great listener if you're not being curious, right? So it's a it's a great relationship. And I'd love to talk about a couple of the gems in the intercultural creativity model. The first one is number two, the empathetic way, because you use a phrase in here about the importance of using empathy to handle conflict with an open mind. And this is not something that I think a lot of people enter or the context for them is not an open mind. Oftentimes, if there's a conflict, it's very tight or specific for me. And it sounds as though what you're suggesting is through empathy and understanding more about the other person, your likelihood or ability to have a more open mind might be relevant. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what the empathetic way, which is the second gem of your model, is referencing. Sure. And these gems are in in this particular order for a a reason because they build upon one another. And what I tell people, like I said before, the number one indicator, um, the number one skill needed in the workforce is creativity. And the number one indicator of a highly creative person is an open mind. 
research has already settled that. The number one indicator of a highly interculturally competent person is openness to people with different lived experiences. So you see the pattern there, openness, openness. But what do biases do? What do um, prejudices do that, that, that it's not um, you know, managed or dealt with? They close your mind. They, they tighten up those associations. And so highly creative people know that they don't know everything. They also know that their brain might be tricking them. And so they have to step back and manage those. And people who have open minds, they're curious and they're understanding, okay, this is the behavior that I see. What's the underlying motivation of this? Like, why is this person saying that? Or why is this person reacting that way? What else is going on that I can't currently see now? People who are highly creative understand that there's more than what what they they see. And so people can practice having an open mind by doing basically what you did as well, by looking at their questioning tech techniques, by being curious and looking at their listening techniques. Like sometimes the biggest things that is said to you aren't isn't said in words, you know, you're, you're reading other things, you're reading body language, you're reading the silences, you're reading um, just the connections between stories that people are saying, are saying. And so I will say that a big part of creativity is the arts, even though a lot of people think creativity is only the arts. So I say creativity isn't only, only the arts, but our artistry really helps you in your creative thinking and it opens your mind. It increases your perspective. So someone who has a music back background per se, they're sensitive to patterns because music is patterns of sounds and silences, correct? And so if you can transfer that skill over to your empathy skill of hearing someone speak, listening for these, these tones, listening for these patterns, it just helps you to understand what's going on even better. So training yourself to have an open mind for creativity, but also training yourself to have an open mind for your intercultural competence is key. Well, I love that definition and a few phrases that I just want to repeat for our listeners, which I think are great takeaways on how to be braver at work. One is curiosity. So I think not going in with the answer if you need to have a difficult conversation with somebody, but being curious about what they were thinking, why they were thinking it, where it came from. Uh, you might learn something that you didn't know uh, in your more closed, biased mind uh, as part of that uh, conversation. So I think that's incredibly valuable for people as they think about really how to be braver in the workplace. Uh, the second Jam, I wanted to mention as part of the intercultural creativity model is authentic adaption or adaptation. Uh, because in there, you talk about shifting their perspective and adapting their behavior. That, you know, one of your goals of intercultural development is because it can shift somebody's perspective or the behavior, which is one of the key outcomes of being brave at work. When we talk about being brave at work, we want to frame it under the, under the model of helping. Right. This isn't about critiquing other people. This isn't about judging other people. This isn't about you winning the argument. This is about saying, hey, I think you could do something differently. I think you could have a better outcome and I'd like to share it with you if you're open to hearing it. So I'd love to hear you know, a little bit about your thoughts on really this authentic adaptation and how that plays a role in uh, intercultural creativity. Sure. When I see someone who is brave at work, they're brave enough to do the work to really connect with other pe people and intercultural competence. The definition of that is, uh, is pe people who have the ability to shift a cultures in order to shift 
cultures or to shift their behavior within cultural situations, they have to be aware. So they're able to detect the com complexity within different cultural groups and compare it to their own experience. So if you look at the observational gym, I call it ICU, ICC me, where you have to be very reflective about your own experience and your reflective or your observe observational about someone else's experience as well. And so in order to be a great adapter, you can adapt different cultural situations. You can sit with the CEO, but you can also, you know, sit with the first person who was just onboarded last week. You can, uh, you know, just have lunch with a very wealthy person, but go sit in a tent along Skid Row and have a conversation to get the lived experience of someone who, who is down on their luck. Highly creative people have that ability. But you also have to understand, and this is a great um, turn of point of, for the neuroscience research, the higher you go in position, the harder it is to perspective shift. And it affects your creativity because you don't have to perspective shift, right? Everyone's shifting their perspective to you because you have power. And so for people who are climbing that ladder of position, they have to do even more work to make those connections with people on different levels of their organization in order to perspective shift. It's hard to lead people who you don't know, because then you turn into an authoritative leader and you're not a consultative leader or, or supportive leader, which allows you to be that challenging creative leader to bring out the best in people. If you're authoritative, you're not really a leader. You're just, you're just a manager parking out, you know, or orders. But people who know how to um, adapt with their team members are sensitive. They're observant. They're curious. They can perspective shift, which allows you to be adaptive with this particular person who may need to be able, who may need to have a communicative style of a, some, some sort, whereas this particular person you could be a little bit more direct with, you know, and leaders understand that you're dealing with a unique individual with multiple facets. My logo is the diamond and I, I use it. I have a huge diamond, by the way, and I, I show people that this diamond because I want people to see this diamond has multiple facets and you're a diamond, you have multiple facets. There's so many ways that you're seeing the world, so many cultural lenses and a great leader can really be observant of that and perspective shift and adapt accordingly. Well, I would imagine that one of the reasons people are not brave at work with senior leaders is their belief or assumption that they are not able to perspective shift, right? If I wanna tell the CEO, that there's something that he or she could be doing differently in order to be more effective, you know, my likelihood of doing it is not going to be incredibly high unless it's, you know, blatantly obvious to everybody. But uh, because of that assumption that their likelihood of perspective shifting is low. Again, I'm not a statistician. It's just an observation that I have of my experiences and others in the workplace. And I would encourage, like, if someone's in that position, I would encourage your ability to perspective shift to the CEO. Like I'm a CEO now, but uh, you know, doing being an ed educator, I was an educator in the classroom and I had other levels of authority above me. So for me to approach, let's say my principal or the superintendent of a school dis district, I would actually take the time to perspective shift into their position. What are they going through? What influences or what responsibilities do they have that I'm not even aware of? You know, can I do some research? Um, is there anything else going on that I'm not aware of? And so when I approach authority, I have done as much research as I possibly can, which includes 
interviewing other people at their same level, you know, or seeing what other people are going through. And so therefore, when I approach them, I'm able to bring these other elements to the table. I'm able to say, oh, I know, not necessarily I know what you're going through, but I, I see that you have these other things going on. Is there a way that I can assist you and really make that connection first and then come in with my ask or with my concern or, or whatever? But it really speaks to people when you build a rap a, a rapport with them. And, and that's a part of neuro-linguistic pro- programming, right? I'm all about, about the brain, what's going on in the brain. And so when that similarity is, con- is made, they're more likely to hear your request after that report is is built. But that takes work, right? Being brave at work takes work um, of you doing your your investigation of what responsibilities and forces are they dealing with that I may not be aware of at this time. Well, I think as we end our conversation today, Janine, I would echo that being brave at work does take work. It takes energy right? It takes commitment in order to say what needs to be said or do what needs to be done. I've loved talking with you today. How could folks get in touch with you if they'd like to hear more about your work uh, or your thoughts about bravery? Sure. Well, my my last thought about bravery really quick is that don't forget it doesn't just affect you, that there are people coming up behind you that are counting on you to be brave at work. There's a lot of people who were brave at work before me that opened the doors that I just walked through now because they were brave at work. They did the work. And so I just want to remind people that this is a ripple effect and your bravery uh, can go beyond generations that aren't even here, here yet. And so my work and my training, my books and my curriculum, they can be found at cafestrategies.com, C-A-F-F-E strategies.com. And um, I I do keynotes. I'm keynoting a lot of HR conferences um, the remainder of this year and looking just to get this framework out there because I believe people need some new tools in order to ride these waves of the unknown. Well, fantastic. And I do agree with you that a lot of what we're talking about today to use a kind of HRE type term is role modeling, right? That I want to demonstrate the type of behavior that I want others to demonstrate as well. And they're not going to unless they see me do it visibly, right? So so thanks again, Janine, for your time today. It was great speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Go be brave at work. <laughs> and to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on multiple online platforms. We are everywhere. Our podcast today was sponsored by Cabot with Strategies, whom you can reach at 800-222-5963 or visit them for more information at CabotRisk.com. And a reminder to check out my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success, which is available in paperback, on Kindle, and in audio everywhere online. You have something to say, yet are not saying it. You have something to do, yet are not doing it. Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.